I think that every sermon should probably come with a disclaimer from the preacher. That this is about Jesus and his word and not about me. And anybody who dares to open up God's word and share it with other people ought to come very humbly to the the task of the great privilege of preaching God's word. I think that disclaimer should include the statement that I am a very imperfect specimen of a follower of Christ. And to even dare stand before you to open up God's word is a very sobering thing. That's how I feel every week. And I know that I don't live the word of God as well as I would like, and I do not trust Jesus to, to, to work in me as, and walk with him as closely as I ought. And I think I feel my glaring inadequacies even more sharply in light of today's passage. 1 Peter 3, 7. Turn there in your Bibles. All the more reason, though, for me to highlight Christ's sovereign sufficiency and complete adequacy. And again, this is true every week, but especially today. I really believe there are godly men in this church that are much more able to deliver this sermon with authenticity and sincerity But I do stand before you today as one called to preach the word, and I will preach it as Christ gives me strength, knowing that I want to follow this just as much as you do. This is for the men today, especially the husbands. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, address the wives. Verse 7, address the husbands. Targets the husbands. Zeroes in on the men. And I want to start really with two questions to the men. First, what are you doing? What are you doing? You might have been asked that question before. And then secondly, what should you be doing? What should you be doing? What are you doing, first of all? A lot of men work long hours and, and are worrying about everything. And the older they get, the, the more they worry versus less. And a lot of men are too busy. A lot of men neglect their own souls and neglect their wives. A lot of men are angry and resentful and controlling. And a lot of men are fulfilling their calling in Christ. Some are ignorant of it. And some are disobedient to it. Some men are actively ignoring or abdicating or shirking their responsibility. The statistics on men and anger and resentment and abuse are staggering. The question is, what are you doing? It's not a tough question, but it is a complex one. But the question, what should you be doing, is answered in 1 Peter 3, 7. And before I read it, let me just say, here's what you should be doing. You should be submitting to God as you serve your wife. You should be submitting to God by serving your wife. That is the calling on husbands. Now, we can look around, and we can see marriage that, that flourishes. Just in this room, yesterday afternoon, we were celebrating Ed and Carla Trenner's 50th wedding anniversary. In, in, in two weeks, my mom and dad will have their 60th wedding anniversary. You say, praise God for these wonderful women that put up with their men for so long. Seriously, some marriages flourish. But we also look and say, you know what? Others struggle immensely. Some thrive. Some stay the, the, uh, the, the goes through the, the test of time. But others crumble. Others cease to exist. 
one after another of marriages we have seen just go by the wayside. And not outside the church, I'm talking inside the church. Inside the church of Jesus Christ with people who are professing to be followers of Christ and and divorce rates are often just as high or even higher in some settings. And I think sometimes we ask the wrong questions when it comes to marriage. It's not about how can I have a good marriage. You know how many people ask that question? How can I have a good marriage? The question is how can I glorify God? How can my marriage reflect Christ? That's the question. And it only happens when a husband and a wife submit to God. And too often marriage is a battleground. A battleground. Carnage. Relational fractures. God wants it to be a a breeding ground for God-glorifying, Christ-exalting death to self. If you're married, you're called to die to yourself. If you're a follower of Christ, you're called to die to yourself. So let's read. Please stand with me. We're going to read 1 Peter 3, verse 7. You might wonder, why did wives get six verses and men only get one? I think in the context, it was probably that wives were more more susceptible to being abused in that context, and wives today are as well. Verse 7 is very sharp. It's very pointed. It's not a hard verse to understand, but it is a verse that has been twisted and abused by many abusive men. So let's read it. 1 Peter 3, 7. This is God's word. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are sovereign and that you know all things and you know if we're bending your word and twisting it to say what we want it to say and and you know the condition of our hearts and you know why we do and why we have done all that we have done you even know all that we're planning lord god i pray that you would give us grace to receive your truth lord grace to obey it by your spirit Lord, I pray that you would make us joyful and happy to submit to you. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We see in verse 7 a husband's roles and responsibilities. That's what we're seeing in this verse. God's ideal in Christ is that a wife's submissiveness would be paired with her husband's self-giving love. Now I realize that everyone who's hearing these words isn't married. But we have this opportunity to teach other people. To teach, to hear the word, but also to mentor others. We should be teaching these things to our young men and to our young women. To children and to youth on how to live and what to expect and, and, and what God wants. You think about it, we have these imperfect examples in every setting you take the best christian marriage and it's a highly imperfect example of trusting a perfect god you take the worst examples 
And every one of them, all the way through, is, is, a, is a, a call to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. A call to trust God to do what you can't do on your own. We saw in the first six verses that wives have roles and responsibilities from God. Number one is to be in submission to the leadership of her husband. God had Peter say that it would be in the hidden person of the heart. A wife's true character as she relates to God and makes basic decisions on a daily basis. And he talked about an imperishable quality. We'll do a little review here. Uh, Imperishable quality. An attitude that God values very highly. Beauty that doesn't fade. And it's the gentle and quiet spirit that is so imperishable in God's sight. It describes a wife's actions and reactions to her husband. God says it's precious. Precious to him, precious to her husband. And it's a reflection of Christ. It's a reflection of Jesus. This this gentle and quiet spirit because Jesus is gentle and humble in heart. And so there's the example of of Sarah who hoped in God and other women who hoped in God there were models of inner beauty modesty character and subjection to their husbands we looked at the Greek word for submission it's hupotasso it's in the present tense and it calls for an ongoing attitude of willingness to be under the order established by God it talks about a continual habit of mind and actions. And this does not come naturally for men or women. It's because of our fallen sinful nature that it does not come naturally to us. Sinful people react sinfully in sinful ways. Can I hear an amen to that? It's true. And it will be this way until Jesus comes again. Sinful people react sinfully in sinful ways because of sin. It is this way. It will not always be this way. But sin entered the perfect environment in the garden. And in Genesis 3.16, God announced a struggle, a conflict that would be ongoing between the man and the woman. She would desire to control him. He would dominate her. And it's been going on ever since. It may have been going on in your car on the way to church. You laugh or cry, right? Go ahead, laugh or cry, but it's true, and we all know it. We know what it's like to live and be who we are. And we must acknowledge something as we begin these verses once again, especially verse 7, but in light of all seven verses, you must acknowledge that to begin with these seven verses is to begin with a problem. To begin with a problem. See, we want to hear these verses the way God intends them. We want to apply them to our lives accurately and appropriately today but to do that we have to acknowledge all the wrong ways that's been taken and the abuses that people have justified based on a faulty understanding of it see we live in a genesis 3 world sinners depraved not utterly utterly depraved means you're as bad as you could be No one's here. No one here is as bad as they could be. No sinner in the world is as bad as they could be. We are totally depraved. That means we are bad enough to be sent to hell for all of our sins. We're totally depraved. And we're self-absorbed. And we're often indifferent. We're often insensitive to the needs of our spouse. 
God said it would be like this, and his solution is that only in Christ, the Redeemer, can relationships be put back to what God intends and be what God intends. But we have to acknowledge, we've we've got to acknowledge that, that many women find it difficult to hear these verses, especially last week's verses, in any way other than they've seen applied by abusive men. So we got to go back to the ancient world for the context that this was first given in. And what was it like for women to hear these words back then? That's what we've got to start with. Peter was writing to women in Asia Minor. Greco-Roman attitude towards women was prevalent. But he was also writing to women from a Jewish background. And they, there was a different attitude that dominated that culture. So really there were two two ideas, two perspectives going on. First, let's take the Jewish perspective. What was that like? Women were respected and protected in the laws, but they were treated as inferior to men in basically every area of life. So the laws might have said, hey, treat women this way, but men did not do so. It was a very patriarchal society that severely limited women's roles and functions, not only in the home, but their, their rights to an inheritance and their choice of relationships and their ability to pursue religious education and participate in the synagogue and their freedom of movement just on a daily basis. And so, now it would be wrong to say that everything was bad for women back then. But it would also be wrong to deny that the world in which they lived and the world in which God was having Peter write was highly restricted patriarchal, not conducive to developing a woman's God-given gifts. Now, we have to admit that. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, women were, in most cases, more free than in the Jewish context. But it depended on where you lived and where, what kind of people you were from, your location and your culture. Wives of citizens of Athens, for example, had as much freedom as Jewish women. They were more restricted. Women in Asia Minor had much more freedom to pursue their interests. They could engage in private businesses. They could serve in public offices. They had prominent roles in various religious groups. They were able to vote. Roman society allowed women property rights and and gave greater, greater leverage in marriage and divorce situations and encouraged more education for women. That was the context of the Greco-Roman world. So Peter is writing to a, to, to a group of people that would have different, different ideas of how they were taking this based upon the culture in which they lived. When you come back to the text and you think about what Peter is encouraging both men and women to do, he is encouraging them to live in light of what Jesus has done on the cross. He's he's not encouraging them to just go along with whatever culture you're a part of. He's saying that that Christ changes things. we We should always be asking, what does the Bible say? And how can the gospel transform this situation or this relationship or this calling? We've got to speak into it based on what Jesus has done. And so Peter is encouraging both men and women to live a life of self denial in following Christ and it would be so that they would live a life that would would give a good reputation for the gospel 
That was the idea. Not that they would particularly have a good reputation. This is not a self-centered thing, but that the gospel would have a good representation in the world. They would be serving the interests of Jesus and the gospel. So when you think about this idea of biblical submission, first you've got to say it wasn't forced. It wasn't forced. It was a voluntary submission based on recognition of God's order in creation, in the home, in, in, in the church. And basically God is, is saying, look, you can only do this if your pride dies and, and you have a desire to serve. You will have problems with this if your pride rises up, men and women alike, and if you don't want to serve but be served. What does the Bible tell us? That Jesus came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what God is saying through Peter here and pointing to Christ as our perfect example Christ who submitted without reservation to the plan of the Father and His perfect will. That there is nothing degrading about submitting to authority and accepting God's ordained order. It ensures the proper functioning of marriage bond between husband and wife. So when God says, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, it should be because of what Jesus did on the cross. So you would willingly and gladly and happily submit to your husband's leadership in marriage. And you would allow and encourage your husband to fulfill his role that is listed in verse 7. Now, feminism and materialism and self-assertion and obsession with sex are highly exalted in our culture today. And it has crept into the church. So we need to take Peter's words very seriously. And the reason why is because God is very serious about his word. It's very easy for us to dismiss God's word. As professing believers... And we must take God's, serious, God's word very seriously because he's serious about the roles of husbands and wives. You go to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 is um, addressing husbands and wives as well. And so you read in verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then you keep reading, and now it's addressed to the husbands, and it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, this self-sacrificing love, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And then he goes on, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. It should be second nature to a Christian husband to love his wife, just like you take care of yourself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And that's really what Peter is getting to here in verse 7 of 1 Peter 3. See, both husband and wife are called to follow Jesus, obviously, and do it in humble love. But the husband's role is different. So it looks different. In Ephesians 5, husbands love and the wives are to respect. Obviously, men are to respect their wives and wives are to love their husbands. But the thing that doesn't come uh, naturally for us, the thing that is tougher for us is husbands to love their wife and wife respect their husband. So in 1 Peter 3, husbands are to serve, wives are to submit. 
The wife submits to God by submitting to her husband. The husband isn't told here to submit to his wife. He's told to serve his wife in a self-giving way. It's a, it's, and, and wives, I don't mean this in any disrespectful way, but the husband's call is tougher on his pride because he is so selfish and he wants to be served. Live with your wives, verse 7 says. Look at verse 7. Likewise, husbands, in the same way that he's been talking about all these groups, now, now, now there's something for you, husbands. Live with your wives in an understanding way. That's the first phrase that we need to look at and understand. You need to understand what it means to be understanding. Live with your wives. What, what is that? It means to dwell together. It, it means this. It means that you want to be with your wife more than anyone else on earth. You don't want to be in your man cave ha- hangout, hideout, whether that's proverbial or real, where you want to just avoid or pretend like you're not listening or be out of the room. You want to be with your wife more than anyone else on earth. You want to be at home with her. It literally means to dwell with her. And not that you're at home all day long, you know, bugging her, but that you would be dwelling with her, at home with her, who you are with her, real with her. It's interesting that God says, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, some, some Bible translations soft-pedal this so much, they'll say, do it in a considerate way. So people say, I'm just going to be very considerate. And they'll, whatever dis- definition they have of considerate, they'll just try to be like formally polite. There's a lot of husbands that are formally polite that don't live with their wives in an understanding way. You've got to understand what it means to be understanding. And, and once you get it, you remember it. Because it, it, when I first heard about this, it just got stuck in my mind. I'm a married man. And, and I want to love my wife appropriately. So I'm going to remember this because this is important. If you see where this verse is angling, it's about your relationship with God. Your relationship with God on the line, is on the line, men. Live with your wives, dwell together with them, want to be with her more than anyone, be at home with her, be, be yourself with her, be comfortable with her in an understanding way. It's the Greek word gnosis. It means to know. It means knowledge. It literally means here, live together according to knowledge. You're like, where's the book? The book about, you know, how to understand my wife. That's not it. Now you got a living book right before you men what it means is come to know come to perceive be aware of learn study realize what God's getting at here is men you're to learn your wife learn how she ticks and how she's wired and how she's gifted and how she's bent and by the way there is no excuse men give so many excuses I give so many excuses. You give so many excuses. There is no excuse for a, for a Christian husband not to know his wife like this. There just isn't. We can't claim ignorance. You know, if you're driving out the parking lot today and, you know, you make a, you make a blunder at, in, as you're driving and you get pulled over and get a ticket and you, you say to the officer, Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know about that rule. What is he going to say to you? 
ignorance of the law doesn't get you off the hook. Here's your ticket. You can't, you can't say, well, you know, do you know what I got to live with here? You know what God gave me to work with here? Do you know how much she does this and that all the time and it bugs me so much? So I want to go into the man cave. I'll tell you, men are really good at hiding from their wives even when they're in the same room. You can be driving in the car together and just hiding. And you say, where is he? Oh, he's in the garage. Or he's in the man cave. You know what? I'm telling you what. There's no excuse for us as Christian husbands to not know our wives or to avoid them. Submitting to God by serving your wife via knowing her means you're going to listen to her. Some men think, oh no, my wife needs to listen to me all the time. I'm the authority. Really? I'll tell you what, Angela has told me so many good things over the last 24 years. Even this morning, she gave me some good advice about this sermon even. I took her advice. Not going to tell you what she said. It'll take too much time. Seriously, it was good. You listen to her. You study her. You seek her best. It isn't just a considerate attitude. You know, check. I'm considerate. I'm polite. No. The focus on the actual knowledge and information. So it would be any knowledge that will help your relationship. Any knowledge of God's purposes and principles and promises for marriage. You want to know this verse. There's no excuse for not memorizing this verse. If you're memorizing First Peter, you got it already. But seriously, one verse? Please, guys. Please memorize this. It's knowing your wife's desires and goals and gifts and frustrations. I like to tell people in marriage counseling, you know where the where the button is, don't push it. We are really good at pushing the button and setting our wives off. You know where it is, don't push that button. Live according to knowledge. Know her strengths and weaknesses. Don't harass her for her weaknesses. Encourage her strengths. Live according to that knowledge in a godly way. Are you hearing me? Gentlemen, are you, are you going with me on this? Tell me you're with me. You got an extra hour of sleep last night, right? Such knowledge that you need to have and not using knowledge about your spouse against your spouse, but for her good, in a godly way, will glorify God and greatly enhance your marriage. Who wouldn't want that? And such knowledge only comes via a humble heart before God who will confess their sins and regularly study God's word and meditate upon it in a regular time of fellowship with your wife. You need to be with your wife. Talk to her. And listen. Live with her in an understanding way versus abuse or indifference or adamantly insisting on your way. A husband must deal with his wife as one who knows her needs and who recognizes the nature of, his feel, of her feelings and her wishes. Because verse 7 also says, showing honor to the woman. Showing honor to the woman. And, and honor means value. 
You're placing value on her. You've set a high price on her. You consider her very valuable. Honor should include kind and affirming words in public and private. I cringe every time I hear a, someone's spouse trash them in public. It's, it's horrible. You know how many men I've corrected about that? You'll put a high priority on the choices you make regarding how you use your time and your money if you honor your wife. She'll say, well, don't, you shouldn't do this. And you're like, you'll talk her into it. And, and God wants you to listen to your wife. You know how many times I've said to other men, you need to listen to your wife, that was really good advice? Of course, it's a lot harder for me to take my own medicine. We know this, right? We know it's harder for, for us to do the thing than to tell someone else. But this goes much deeper than a forced formal show of respect. You look at verse... Look at verse... 7 of chapter 2. I'm talking about the stone, the cornerstone that is... that is precious... It says, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. What is this stone like? Look at verse 6. Precious. Chosen and precious. That word precious is the same word that's used honor here. It's the same word. It literally means preciousness. So the honor, the preciousness that a husband should give his wife is you recognize her God-given role in marriage. And as an heir of God's precious and holy promises in Christ, therefore you treat her very well. You value her, you treasure her, you, you cherish her. You where I see this the most? Amongst newlyweds and older folks that have been married a long time. But that middle ground gets really shaky. And that's where most of the divorces happen. I don't see... Couples that have been married for 60 years crashing and burning. And usually if you're a newlywed, you're not going, hey, let's, let's end this now. I'm through. I'm done. It's that middle ground where you just, you lose your love and you lose your focus and you get so caught up in other things. And then we want to be resentful because we're victims and we're not. We're choosers. He says, show honor to the woman. That's a very, very interesting word it just it literally means the feminine one he's talking about the nature of womanhood that isn't manhood it's womanhood and a a wife's femaleness should inspire honor from her husband and he says as the weaker vessel and this has been taken in all sorts of twisted ways but if you look at the 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 a good handling of scripture an accurate handling of scripture what you'll see is that you can take this in three different ways weaker in authority in the marriage even um, the emotional makeup the the sensitivity or physically and I believe it's it's talking about physically in general comparatively in general sure there's women that are stronger than men in, in some settings but in the most part Physically, God has made the woman's frame weaker. So there should be a protection here. There should be an honor that men give. Both man and woman are vessels. It says, as the weaker vessel. There's two vessels here. Man's also a vessel. This is a reminder of how frail both men and women are. 
We're earthen vessels. And our obligation is to God, our Creator, not to be harsh with each other. Not to criticize, not to conflict, but be positive and affirming of who they are. Paul told the Colossians in Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Why did he say that? Why would he have to say that? Why would Peter have to say, live with your wives in an understanding way, if, wife, if husbands weren't? Why would Paul have to say, don't be harsh, unless husbands were? In a sin-soaked world, men have the certain sinful tendencies to be harsh with their wives instead of gentle. I mean, remember, you know, in, in Romans 12.3, we're told not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think because we lean that way. Well, submitting to God by serving your wife via honoring her and valuing her means you will listen to her heart and, and her requests. And you'll consider her word or opinion on little things important. I know it's kind of a lame example, but just in the last few months, Angela says to me, you know, it really bugs me when you, when you hang your clothes over the end of the bed. <laughs> And I was like, but it's a great spot to put them when I don't want to hang them up. At least I don't throw them on the floor, you know? But I, I remembered that, and I don't hang things on the end of the bed. I know it's a little thing, kind of just lame, but it's like, well, if I'll do that, maybe I'll do something even bigger and better. Man, you got to do some things to protect your wife. You got to protect your wife from your anger and your abuse. I said last week that a wife should not submit to her husband if, if in doing so she would disobey God or sin or be abused. Henry Cloud and John Townsend in their book Boundaries say they've never seen a submission problem that didn't have a controlling husband at its root. The lack of Christ-likeness, they say, in a controlling husband becomes evident because the wife no longer enables his immature behavior. She is confronting the truth and setting the limits of hurtful behavior. And often when the, when the wife does that, the husband begins to grow up. I like to say it this way. Men, put your big boy pants on. Do what God calls you to do. But anger and abuse are issues for husbands. And for some wives it is too. There's spousal abuse of wives to husbands as well. But it's more prevalent for men to women. But also what prevalent among men are passive-aggressive, abdicating the role and responsibilities. Well, you want to be in control? Fine, I'll just back away. I've, I've come across way too many men that say, I backed away a long time ago. She's in charge. That's wrong view. It's a self-centered view. It's cowardice. It's ignorance. It's, it's fear. What does your marriage depend upon? Your marriage depends upon forgiveness and repentance. Men, husbands... And you should be the first one, the first one to confess and repent. James says we all stumble in many ways, right? James 3, 2. You and your wife are going to stumble in many ways. So please don't be surprised when your wife sins. I love the, 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 uh, the title of one marriage book. What did you expect? You married a sinner. What did you expect? But you must be committed to live out the or worse part of your vows and be ready to forgive. James says we should confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. James 5.16 What do we do? We get defensive. We need to confess our sins and repent. Turn away from those sins. Men, as the leader in your marriage, you should be the first to repent and forgive. If someone needs to own up, it should be you first. 
The Bible says outdo one another in showing honor. So honor your wife in light of your debt to God's grace in Christ and lead the way in that, in that race to repentance and forgiveness. Now, just like wives are not to obey husbands if commanded to disobey God, men, you should never let honoring your wife go bad on you to the extent that you honor your wife above God and then sin. We've got some, some examples in the Bible. Solomon, he ignored that, that idea. And uh, what, he had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and he listened to them. They turned his heart from God. You've got Abraham. His wife tells him, hey, God has withheld children from me, so go take my maidservant Hagar and have a baby with her. Adam, let's go all the way back. He took and ate, right? Now, there's a reason for what God is saying, and it's in the last part of this verse, and in verse 7 it says, so that, here's the reason, the result, since they're heirs, since and so is what we've got, okay? So since they're heirs with you of the grace of life. In spiritual matters, women are co-heirs with men when both come to faith in Christ. Heirs with you, co-inheritors, waiting for Jesus together to return or take you home. And the grace of life, it doesn't mean marriage. It doesn't mean just life in general. It's eternal life. He's talking to the elect, to believers. It's salvation in Christ. Chares, zoe, grace, life. And, and he's saying, you got the same salvation. You're equal before God, but different roles and responsibilities. You're people made in God's image, redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And you see that God has no issue with someone being an heir and being under the authority of their husband. Why does Peter remind us that, that husbands and wives are co-heirs, spiritually equal? Because in a fallen world, people with authority misuse their authority. They believe they're better than those that they lead. And in marriage, a sinful man can deceive himself into thinking, he's the leader, so he's better. He's the leader, so he's in charge. See, Peter says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That should make you shudder, men. That God might just not listen to your prayers, might put up a roadblock. See, a lot of people say, oh, that's, that's because of the human issues I, I hindered my own prayers. No, what he's saying is God is going to put up a roadblock to your prayers. God is going to hinder your prayers. God is going to put some Hebrews 12 discipline, fatherly discipline on you men when you do not do this. That's what he's saying. I'm sure you put up a roadblock to your relationship with God and God basically says, here, here's a bigger roadblock. You can't even get through. Husbands, God's word doesn't say that you should love your wife only if she submits to you. It doesn't tell your wife to submit to you only if you love her as Christ loved the church. You're called to love your wife whether she submits to you or not. And put your big boy pants on and be willing to put your life with your wife, put your life down on the altar for your wife, even if she never has a gentle and quiet spirit. Your role before God remains the same, and she can't fulfill your role, you can't for fulfill hers you've got to obey god in christ by the spirit elizabeth elliott said something about this you know we like to say well you, again i'm going to wiggle my way out of this she says does it make sense to pray for guidance about the future if we're not obeying in the thing that lies before us today how many momentous events in scripture depended on one person's seemingly small act of, dis- of obedience 
Rest assured, do what God tells you to do now and depend on it. You'll be shown what to do next. If we hold tightly to anything given to us, unwilling to allow it to be used as the giver meant it to be used, we stunt the growth of the soul. What God gives us is not necessarily ours, but only ours to offer back to Him, ours to relinquish, ours to lose, ours to let go of, if we want to be our true selves. And then she says, many deaths must go into reaching our maturity in Christ, many letting goes. But we don't want to die to self. We'd rather just obey God and be miserable. A lot of people are happy to be miserable. But you submit to God by serving your wife, gentlemen, and not letting your prayers be hindered. It means you're going to be serving your family, opening up God's word with your family, praying with your wife. Most Christian couples don't pray and read the Bible together. They've just taken that out of the relationship. That's just believing a lie that it's not necessary and not important. Yes, every Christian couple should be reading the Bible and praying together. Yes. It's not an anomaly. It's not for super Christians. It's for Christians. There's a lot more I could say about friends like Vince Zemus, who was the first to model what this looks like to me, or Ed and Carla Trenner, or my mom and dad, or people like Dave Strzeski caring for his wife right now, or Jim Songer caring for Colleen. I think about one of my seminary professors, Jim Rosscup. He was such, he is still alive, but she has passed on. He wrote a book called My Wife, Her Shining Life. It's a tribute to God and, and his grace in her life. He says God fashioned her to be the woman he wanted her to be. He made her a shining light that passed through this world and brightened those who lived in its rays. In his eternal counsels, he planned for her. He chose her to be his very own and gave her grace that was glowing like the sparkle of a star in her. And on this earth, when he made the way for her, here is how he did it. First, he skillfully wrought her in his, her mother's womb, fashioning in secret her inward parts as one fearfully and wonderfully made. And his eyes saw her before her birth. In his book, he wrote all the days ordained for her when as yet there was not one of them. And now she has completed the days God has ordained for her. And goes on to tell how they served the Lord together. For 51 years, four months, 51 years and four months, he blessed their ministry together. And this man was a man of prayer, is a man of prayer. John MacArthur talks about this guy. He was one of his seminary profs. He was one of my seminary profs. And he may be one of Andrew McNeil's seminary profs in a few, in a few months. But he, uh, John MacArthur says, I first met Jim when I was a seminary student. Even then, I was impacted by his contagious love for Christ and his sacrificial care for others. His profound prayer life was an encouragement and a conviction to all who knew him. He would often ask his students if he could pray for us, and we knew that he meant it because he would follow up and ask us for updates, sometimes even weeks later. He did that for me. He wrote me a note, put it in my box at Talbot back in 1985. Hey, that prayer request you gave in class, I'm praying for that. He wrote a four-volume exposition of every prayer in the Bible. This guy's a man of prayer. And I'll tell you, his prayer life can be pointed directly to how much he honored God by serving his wife. How often do we echo the sentiments of our me first generation? Doesn't God want me to be happy? He doesn't. He wants you to be holy. Lord God, I pray that you would give us grace to receive your word and in the midst of pain 
through joy, we know, Lord, that as believers, you will present us to yourself as part of your church, your bride, in all her radiance. We thank you, Lord, that you are making us beautiful as you sanctify us by a fire of testing. But, Lord, may we be happy and content and joyful in Christ, enraptured by him and by, by, by the strength you supply fulfill what you call us to do as Christian husbands. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.